Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the New Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. John Frederick. Welcome back, everyone. This is 2.4, The Foolishness of the Cross. And today what I want to do is look at Paul's theology of the cross through a theme that's often talked about and often controversially talked about, that being the wrath of God. We find that theme in 1 Thessalonians, and we find it really through the entire New Testament. And so through reading the Old and New Testaments together, I want us to discover how the death of Jesus functions as the fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthood, the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system, and the fulfillment of the Passover lamb in the Old Testament. So let's hear from 1 Thessalonians, and then let's read across the New Testament as we let Scripture interpret Scripture and thereby dig into this central component of Christian belief, the cross of Jesus Christ. So hear the word of God from 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 through 10. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. In much contemporary theological discussion, this issue of wrath proves to be too uncomfortable for most people to accept. It raises images of a vicious, unpredictable, violent pagan deity who needs this violence, who needs this bloodshed to act in a benevolent manner toward humankind. Thus, many have opted to pretend that wrath is not even a biblical concept at all. Some have outright denied the reality of wrath altogether. Often they do this despite the biblical witness to the concept of wrath, and they cast off wrath as something that's incommensurate with God's love. And so it's thus not worthy of discussion. But this move to de-wrathify the Bible, of course, creates many problems. And this is because wrath is abundantly manifest in both the Old and the New Testaments, including in the teaching of Jesus. Simply cutting wrath out of the Bible is not really an option for the serious Christian. It amounts to saying, in essence, Jesus was wrong, which theologically clearly presents a problem. What we really need to do instead is to recognize that when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, it is not referring to a vicious and furious rage that needs to be placated. Rather, it is basically shorthand. It's basically a technical term for the first century concept of the just judgment of God, and the just judgment of God on sinful human beings. Even that, however, is still too much for some people to stomach. God is love, some will say, and so he cannot also be about judgment. In adopting what Christian Smith has called moralistic therapeutic deism, many wrongly reject the biblical notion of judgment because It doesn't fit with their idea of an aloof, 
bearded god in the sky who tosses out candy canes and lollies to his disobedient children on earth, never chastising them, and rather unconditionally accepting their disobedience as some form of virtue. Yet, on what basis do we accept some teachings of the New Testament and reject other teachings? Do you know what I mean? If we cherry-pick the verses we enjoy, you know, the verses about Jesus being loving, stuff like that, but then ignore all of the other things that Jesus taught about judgment, about the consequences of sin, about the necessity of his death on a cross in our place for our sins, do we not then cut off the branch that we're sitting on? Once we introduce a sort of cafeteria, buffet-style approach to the teachings of Jesus, we actually evacuate the Bible of its power to authoritatively speak about anything. We can make Jesus say anything when we place a muzzle on the biblical Christ and create a new Christ curated from some selection of his teachings that are conformed to our own image, that are conformed to our own preferences. If we redact the Bible through a filter that we create, we're deceiving ourselves. And we are insisting that we know better than God and that we are more morally equipped than God to make decisions about the nature of reality, about the nature of truth, about the nature of what it means to live in Jesus Christ. How arrogant. From a purely human perspective, first of all, wrath as God's just judgment is not at all at odds with God's love for humanity. Since the wrath of God in Scripture is not a reference to uncontrollable violent rage, wrath does not even have that human connotation of anger that we usually associate with the word when it is used in reference to God. Again, Wrath is a reference to judgment, and Jesus himself clearly teaches about judgment in multiple places throughout all four of the canonical Gospels. So when I have to reprimand my young children, I'll often say in a very calm voice something like this, you are forgiven. I love you. I will always love you. There's nothing you can do that would ever make me stop loving you. I'm not angry, but there will be consequences for your actions. And my children still, even when I gently speak like that, usually recoil and they say, consequences? No! You see, it's difficult for them to see how their disobedient act is followed by both a response of forgiveness and love, and non-aggression, but also that there are consequences for their actions. The same is true for someone who has, you know, committed a criminal act. The court, in declaring an individual guilty, is not saying, we do not love you, nor are they making any statement about, you know, whether or not they're willing to personally forgive this person. The person may very well be loved and may be forgiven by the family of the offended parties, or the judge, or the members of the jury. Nevertheless, the consequences for their crime still stand. 
and this makes itself known in the judgment of the court. Likewise, Scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23, and that the gift of God is eternal life. Earlier in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul describes the state of humanity in sin and condemnation and the salvation that comes through the death of Jesus to free them from the coming judgment and from the wrath. So hear the word of God. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see, wrath again. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Now to those who protest and say, that's Paul, that's not Jesus. Consider that Jesus himself in Matthew 17 verses 22 through 23 says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And if you're thinking, nah, Jesus must have been confused that day, then how do you explain John the Baptist referring to Jesus as the, quote, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? A saying which equates Jesus with the Jewish Passover lamb that was ceremonially sacrificed during the Passover feasts in remembrance of Israel's exodus out of slavery and their deliverance from death by God. Nope, some will say, it can't be. Jesus dying for our sins, that's antithetical to God's love. I don't know why everybody who opposes what I'm saying all of a sudden becomes a Bostonian uh, with a thick accent, but that's just how it goes. Well, let's continue to read across the scriptures. Let's see what the apostle John thinks. In his God of Love passage, for example, which we find in 1 John 4, 7 through 12, hear the word of God from John. Beloved, let us love one another because God is love. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God for God is love. God's love has been revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and he sent his son to be, hear this, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. But say Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul, say all of those people are not enough for you and you want to keep building your Christology, your understanding of Jesus on the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's album rather than the Bible. What about Peter? Let's bring him into the equation. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ, quote, suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, in order that he might bring us to God. And even more in 1 Peter 2, 22 to 25. There, Peter draws on the Old Testament's prophecy from Isaiah about God's suffering servant to demonstrate how on the cross, Jesus' death provided a substitutionary atonement for human beings. This is what Peter writes. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. By his wounds you are healed. For you all are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds you are healed. That's what Peter says about what happened on the cross. You see, God's justice is not contrary to God's love. In fact, it is common for theologians to combine these two elements to talk about God's singular character, noting that God is lovingly just and justly loving. When, as I mentioned before, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, this is meant to show us why Christ had to die. Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus have to die? Why? He didn't die because God operates like a sadistic judge in a cosmic courtroom eager to condemn us because of our sins. He died because God is a loving father who enters into the suffering, who enters into death, who enters into sin and conquers it. God enters into the gap created by sin and created by death, and God closes the gap. God closes the gap. No one else, not any human being, not any other God, but the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God closes the gap. God's love is not a love that ignores unrighteousness. It's a love that dies to destroy it so that we might be saved, so that we might be counted righteous. And you know, when it comes to the cross of Christ and thinking about the love of God, I really love the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who wrote in his sermon, Loving Your Enemies, the following. So this morning, 
as I look into your eyes and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I am foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom. We will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us. And we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. And he continues. Another way that you love your enemy is this. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time which you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who has misused you most, the person who has gossiped about you most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of a recommendation for a job. It might be in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That's the time that you must do it. This is the meaning of love. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something that we talk about. It is not merely an emotional something. Love is creative. Understanding the goodwill for all men, it is the refusal to defeat any individual. When you rise to the level of love, of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system, you love, but you seek to defeat the system. Powerful words. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, I would say, God does not defeat us. He defeats sin. He defeats Satan. God defeats death in the cross of Christ. Love defeats, to use Dr. King's words, the system, right? Love defeats the power that keeps us from God, that keeps us from living in harmony with each other. The cross is where, as Psalm 85.10 says, love and faithfulness meet, where righteousness and peace kiss each other. And through the eyes of faith, given by the Holy Spirit, the foolishness of the cross and the ridiculousness of the resurrection become for us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.24, the power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation. Once this happens, we too can taunt death with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57, when he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God indeed. This is the story of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Foolishness 
to the world, but the power of God to salvation for those who are given eyes to see by the Spirit. I would invite you to read through some of those verses, meditate on them this week, and then speak about them and embody them where you work, where you live, at the dinner table, wherever you find yourself to be this week. Have a good one. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.